Hello there. Gareth Jones on Speed is defined by our passion for cars that go quickly and the people who drive them. So I'm thrilled to present this special edition of the podcast, marking the 30th anniversary of Richard Noble breaking the world land speed record in Thrust 2, and recorded at the 2013 Goodwood Festival of Speed. Here is our exclusive interview with Wing Commander Andy Green, the fastest man on the planet. Wing Commander Andy Green, sir, it's lovely to meet you. Thank you for finding time to talk to Gareth Jones on Speed. Gareth, absolute pleasure. It's fantastic to be here. Goodwood Festival of Speed. The sun is beating down. Amazing cars are blasting up the track. And we right now are sitting in a historic display of some of the most amazing world land speed record cars of all time. As a speed fan, to see you sitting alongside Bluebird. Which one is this? Would we call this one seven or five, this this one? Well, there are actually three Bluebird cars in total. Two for the great Sir Malcolm Campbell. And we're sitting next to his son's car, Donald Campbell's Bluebird CN7. CN7. That's it. I built a model out of that out of paper a while ago. That's how much I love that particular car. Was the World Land Speed Record something that you were aware of, passionate about, before you were enlisted as a driver, a pilot perhaps? I was always intrigued by the concept of taking a car and just making it faster than any other car in history had gone. I never envisaged the chance to get involved in a record like this. I was very much focused on, first of all, finishing my schooling because I was going to need the qualifications for what I really wanted to do, which was join the Royal Air Force and fly jet fighters. Now, I got incredibly lucky not only to complete that process and have the world's best day job in the Royal Air Force, flying jet fighters, defending the country, but subsequently to meet a man called Richard Noble and become involved in his previous land speed record, our previous land speed record, which was the thrust supersonic car to take the first car in the world to go supersonic and set a record so i've had absolutely the best of both being aware of it as a youngster and then subsequently realizing that you could actually live this dream has been extraordinary we're surrounded by cars which as a youngster for me are very familiar with there's golden arrow there cn7 here is that a railton that one there do you know how good are you on the history of these things That is the Sunbeam 350-horsepower car bought by Malcolm Campbell in 1924. Now, that car already held the land speed record. So this was something a bit like me getting involved in somebody else's record. Malcolm Campbell started like that (laughs) back in the 1920s by buying a record car. And in those days, you didn't build record cars. You bought race cars and then tried to make them go fast. So that was actually a track racing car, a very good one. had a World War I aero engine in it and they took the 350 horsepower engine it was about 300 they souped it up to 350 Kenham Lee Guinness set a record at 143 miles an hour and Campbell being Campbell assumed he could do better bought the car 1924 he was up to 146 miles an hour 1925 first man to do over 150 miles an hour this is a 1920s track racing car long slim body open cockpit the wheels stick out either side of the car it looks like a 1920s race car 
but Campbell realised that that technology was going to be limited so he did something no one had ever done before and started to build a car just for the world land speed record so it would only do one thing which was the maximum speed in a straight line and that became effectively the Mark II Bluebird which over the next 10 years would race with various different body designs and two different engines finishing up by 1935 with the Rolls-Royce Type R engine in it the only engine in history to hold the world airspeed, water speed and land speed records. Of course, yes. And in 1935, Campbell got it to a speed of 300 miles an hour. First man through 150. Ten years later, first man through 300 miles an hour. So his career almost defines record-breaking and technology development all in that ten-year period. So Gareth Jones on speed and the green interview. How quick can we go? Motorsport is a great starting point for land speed record cars. Then you have to enhance them, and the way to enhance it seems to be aero technology, aircraft technology. Historically, jet engines came into land speed record cars, and now the kind of advanced CFD that you're using on Bloodhound SSC is pushing the boundaries of even what we know in terms of aircraft technology. How much further could we go? Is 1,000 miles per hour a final barrier to overcome? Well, 1,000 miles an hour is a nice round number. That's not the principal reason we picked it. The target for Bloodhound, fundamentally, was to get a generation of young people excited about science and technology. And that was a discussion that we had with Paul Drayson, the sometime Minister of Defence, sometime racing driver. He understood how technology crosses over from motorsport to other places and benefits British industry. The Formula One cars, almost all of them, based in the UK. We are better at this than anyone else in the world. He understood intuitively the value of this to the UK. So we were setting out to build something that would just wow a generation and get them excited about science and technology. In the same way that Campbell doing 150 miles an hour in 1925 excited a whole generation of young kids, we were going to try and do the same. What is the limit? It's not just beating the current record. What is the technology limit? How fast is it possible to go if you just make that your aim? And we looked at the wheels and how fast they would need to rotate. We looked at the aerodynamics and the challenge of keeping the car on the ground. We looked at how much power the car would need and how much you could physically pack into this sort of size of chassis. And all the numbers came up to about 1,000 miles an hour. The wheels are rotating at 10,000 revolutions a minute and pulling 50,000 times the force of gravity outwards at peak speed. So you're not using rubber. You're now right up at the limiting strength of aerospace-grade aluminium. You're looking at whether you have to use titanium, but there are some problems with titanium as well. So there's a technological limit there. To actually generate the power to get up to 1,000 miles an hour, you're looking at a car that, in equivalent horsepower terms, we've got 21 tonnes of thrust, equates to 133,000 horsepower. Wow. It's just huge, huge numbers. In equivalent horsepower terms, it's more power than the QE2 develops. So, absolutely enormous numbers. And again, the limit of what's the best jet engine in the world, currently the Eurofighter Typhoon, if we added a rocket to it and the amount of power you can get from the rocket is limited by how much fuel you can carry so we looked at that package and said that again comes out to around a thousand miles an hour being achievable so we are pushing the boundary to where technology exists right now five years ago it didn't exist we've had to develop some of it 10 or 15 years from now your guess is as good as mine but you have to have a reason to develop this so i think that the thousand mile an hour record will stand for a long time it strikes me that you're actually running a 
public engagement programme that also features going very, very quickly. The ability of a project like this to inspire a generation to get young people involved in STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, has the ability to do what the Apollo programme did for my generation in the 60s and the 70s. I'm a child of the space age. The reason I like technology is because the single most exciting thing that ever happened in my life happened when I was eight years old and they landed on the moon. Is this the right way to do this now? Because you're doing it through social media, you're doing it through clubs and workshops with young people. I know that the Bloodhound team are out there working with some of the people I work with. Do you get feedback from these people and how does that affect the project? You know, Do young people say, hang on, I've had an idea, I've learned something? Because kids are very good blue sky thinkers, aren't they? Or have you got it nailed down, you and your experts? We are lucky enough that the core expertise we've got in the team, not only from Thrust SSC and even before that, but also all of the aerospace and motorsport expertise we've brought in from all over, not only the UK, but all over the world, we're pulling in this expertise. We've got, I would say, the most qualified land speed record team in history if for no other reason that we've got all the data and we already hold the record. So we've got a huge, huge advantage. Does that mean we know everything? Of course it doesn't. All the time we are working at each area of risk, keeping the car on the ground, dealing with the structural loads of 12 tonnes per square metre of aerodynamic load, dealing with the very small variations over the 12-mile track we have in South Africa. We'll put some quite big loads into the suspension, Mm. which in itself has to support a 7-tonne vehicle. How how much movement do you have on the suspension? We're planning for around plus and minus 50 millimetres as the total suspension travel. Actually, we won't even see half of that. But if you've got the travel, then you can actually adjust it to suit the surface. And is it active or is it a passive system? It's a completely passive, very, very simple system. It's independent, double wishbones on all four corners, and it's a very simple spring and damper unit on each corner. So it's fully adjustable both in spring rate and bump and rebound damping. And then it's just a case of tuning that suspension so we get the best and most stable ride, both for the car as a dynamic platform, because it's quite easy to get unstable in a car, to get into a tank slapper or the equivalent. And, of course, also as a stable platform for the aerodynamics to work, because at the high speed, the aerodynamics are keeping the car on the ground, but the fact it is on the ground is the core part of the stability equation. The wheels must stay on the ground to keep the car safe. So as part of your preparations, are you doing a 3D model mapping every stone, practically variation in elevation, on hack scheme pan? Do you have a sort of a datum line that you work to? It's you a, just suck it and see? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a two-part process. First of all, the South Africans, the Northern Cape government in the northwest corner of South Africa has spent the last three years employing a team of 300 local people to clear the track. They have literally cleared the largest surface on earth cleared by hand. So I'm actually talking to Guinness World Records right now to get them a certificate for this because we've documented the whole thing. 20 million square metres. Now, from where we're sitting here on the south coast of the UK, if you took, say, the A27, it's a dual carriageway, if you took the two lanes of the A27 and extended them all the way to Moscow, that's the surface area you have to clear by hand and they have scraped and swept the whole of that. Wow. 300 people have picked up 6,000 tonnes of stones. Wow. That's 20 tonnes per person. It's an amazing effort. So mapping every stone, well, there are no stones. But, of course, there is still a natural water-laid lake bed out there, Mm -hmm. and we need to understand 
are there any sort of long period waves when the water moves around with the wind does it form a wave that's perhaps 30 or 40 millimeters tall and 200 meters long now that would be invisible to the naked eye even you drive across it in a car at 100 miles an hour you won't feel it mm-hmm. drive across it at a thousand miles an hour and you know and, and you will finish up with variations which are feeding the suspension at two and a half times a second right which is very close to the natural frequency of the suspension uh-huh. which is a bad thing yeah so we need to check not only for the detailed bumps and lumps are easy to see you can see those with the eye we need to check for all the very long shallow very minor ones to understand exactly what the surface is and work out how to set the suspension up for it so we are laser mapping all 20 million square meters just to have an idea of exactly what's out there the Gareth Jones on Speed and the Green interview. What kind of person wants to break the land speed record? We've talked about the technology, we've talked about the challenge, but my friend Zog here has a view on the character of the people who steer these sort of vehicles. Andy strikes me as being very different to some of the guys in the past. I wondered if you might have a view on the psychology of what kind of people are attracted to this kind of record breaking effort and also what kind of psychological makeup it takes to be good at it because it strikes me that you know let's say Malcolm Campbell was one kind of personality Craig Breedlove a very different kind of almost happy-go-lucky you might think superficially personality you don't seem to be in that same mold what do you share with those guys or are you a different breed I suppose is the question well first of all let's work out what the common characteristics are let's actually look at this more widely as driving fast cars straight line this is the original form of motorsport 1898 before they started track racing before road racing was common the world's first land speed record was set 39 miles an hour wasn't by very, an electric car by an electric car they understood environmental implications even then <laughs> or, or perhaps it's just because electricity was the fastest yeah, at that yeah, stage yeah. but the point is there was the original form of motor racing other things developed from it it's very difficult to form a competitive series with straight line cars you get records broken a few times a year even in the busy periods whereas you can have motor races going around circuits pretty much every weekend Mm. now what is the motivation for a racing driver particularly in the 1920s when it was a very dangerous sport why did they do that have they got a death wish are they gung-ho or are they just very very competitive individuals with a particular set of skills who found the challenge of doing that and also at the highest levels when they get up to the grand prix level racing for national pride and mm-hmm. for their country mm-hmm. so or the, the pride of the empire as it was which is even greater than national pride you might argue absolutely right and there was a huge amount of national pride in having the fastest race cars mm. now in that context the original form of motor racing the highest speed motor racing is the speed record if you take the same mindset of being competitive having that national pride having the skills to be able to do this and in the 20s and 30s a lot of these guys were also racing drivers henry seagrave john cobb malcolm campbell very accomplished racing driver they also set land speed records so it is a natural extension of the mindset of anybody who's involved in motorsports land speed record breaking is not that different and campbell certainly also had that enormous pride not only in nation but in empire 
one of the reasons that he wanted to go to South Africa in 1929, and he was the only person to attempt to record in South Africa, is because then it was still part of the empire. Mm -hmm. So this was still part of the great British empire, globally demonstrating its expertise and its pride and excellence to the world. And holding the empire together by reaching out to the parts of the empire as well, securing that relationship. Exactly. It is interesting now to look back at that and the effect that was having. Look at the effect that we are having in running a record in South Africa. Now we're starting to talk to South African companies, we're starting to strengthen a business relationship, we're starting to strengthen a political relationship. The Northern Cape government came across to the UK two weeks ago for David Willits, the Minister for Science, to open our new technology centre where we're building the car down in Bristol. One of the things the Northern Cape government had was an invitation to go to number 10 and actually just talk about relationships between South Africa and particularly their province and the UK uh-huh. and the business opportunities and the tourism opportunities for them. So we're building bilateral links in a different way. We're pulling together now an international community in the same way that Campbell wanted to draw together and make proud the empire. It's so, a very British adventure, this, though. Most, if not Every element is built in the UK. Where's the Eurofighter engine built? Is it built in the UK to Rolls-Royce? Well, the Eurofighter engine is actually a Eurojet design, so it's a four-nation Eurojet, but Rolls-Royce is a very big partner Mm. in the expertise, and certainly all the technical advice we've had in the engine limits, etc., have come from Rolls-Royce. And Rolls-Royce is an interesting example of a sponsor company. We're sitting surrounded by cars. The Donald Campbell CN7 that we're sitting next to, we mentioned earlier, has the Bristol Sidley Proteus Mm -hmm. built in Bristol Filton. Mm -hmm just next to where the Rolls-Royce factory is now. Malcolm Campbell's car, the most successful with the Type R engine in it, Rolls-Royce never sponsored any of these records. They never needed to. People used their engines and they just got the credit anyway. Because of what we're trying to achieve nationally and internationally, because of the education programme, Rolls-Royce are now formally sponsoring Bloodhound, their first ever record. Breakthrough. Congratulations. That means a huge amount to us. They're also facing some interesting technical challenges, where Campbell took the Type R engine in 1935 to 300. Well, it had already done that in the Supermarine uh, uh, S6B, winning the Schneider Trophy, the world's airspeed record. Rolls-Royce are now helping us to put the EJ200, the Eurojet product, in Bloodhound to do 1,000 miles an hour, which is faster than the Eurofighter will go. So we're taking the engine for the first time outside its operating limits, outside its design speed. What will happen? What are the loads on the engine? Electronically, what will the engine detect in terms of pressures? And will it actually try and shut itself down because it sees something bad going on? So we've had to look at the software, and Rolls-Royce has helped us to set the car up to keep the engine happy that nothing bad's going on. How accurate can your modelling, your digital modelling of what you expect to happen be? Because, as we know, air can be a chaotic system, you know, a turbulent system. Suddenly, at certain velocities, things change that you were unable to predict or is your modeling so extensive now that you truly can accurately predict what you expect to happen at those velocities the concept that starting to go supersonic things dramatically change in a way you can't predict Mm. is is something of a hangover from the 1960s because that was absolutely true in the early days of jet fighters nowadays modeling is accurate enough and precise enough that you can very very accurately understand an awful lot of what goes on. 
when you get into very complex turbulent flow, mm. so you get a lot of weight turbulence and a lot of broken up airflow, Formula One being a good example with the wheels sticking out in the airflow and the front wings sticking out, they use a lot of wind tunnel modelling because the computer model is still not good enough to True. give them very, very precise data. Yep. However, if you pick a very simple, smooth shape like Bloodhound, where going supersonic with a moving ground underneath it is not something you can do in a wind tunnel. Mm-hmm. But you don't have that turbulent, complicated airflow. You don't have big, fat tyres sticking out into the airflow in front of the car. It's a much simpler problem to solve. So computer modelling actually gives us a much more accurate result than it could for almost any other form of race car because the car is so sleek and smooth and the airflow is so relatively predictable. And, of course, we know this technique works. We did it 16 years ago for the thrust supersonic car, which holds the current record. The modelling wasn't perfectly accurate, but it was good enough to give us the data we needed. Now, that was done on what then was a supercomputer, what we would now call a reasonably high-spec desktop that you would have at home if you were a computer enthusiast. Supercomputers now are a million times more powerful. I made that number up. It's probably a lot more than a million. (laughs) But the processing power now is just astonishing. We used a very, very simple model for thrust SSC of half a million space elements. We couldn't allow for friction or rotating wheels or crosswinds, anything complex at all. It was a very simple model. For Bloodhound, the computer model is 100 million space elements, and we've got the viscosity, so we've got the boundary layer and the friction on the surface of the car. Mm -hmm. We can model rotating wheels inside the wheel bays. We can look at shock waves around the wheels. We can even look at the difference between a crosswind and the car having a slight element of yaw. So tiny differences we can now model very, very precisely. The difference in the technology gives us a huge level of confidence, which we will still go out and test so two years time 2015 we will be out in south africa on hack scheme pan and we won't get in and say right is the car ready let's just try a thousand miles an hour we'll go out and we'll try 200 miles an hour which is about as fast as it's been tested in the uk then we'll do 250 then we'll do 300 we might need to change something do 300 again 350 400 step by step and as we go faster the increments get smaller we're testing the parachutes every time we're testing the air brakes every time we're testing the steering the suspension working out what the rolling resistance is exactly what the airflow is comparing it with the model step by step building up the world's understanding of what happens in this environment more precisely than any team ever has in history. The Gareth Jones on Speed and the Green Interview. What could go wrong? Talking about prediction, we know what we know, we know what we don't know. Is there also an element of we don't know what we don't know as well? What is it that troubles you? I want to say frightens you. What troubles you? What what are the potential areas for inaccuracies or unpredictability? Is it the human element? There's an element of human variability. We've got a bunch of very, very highly skilled engineers designing and building this car, but no one is perfect. However, an awful lot of prototype aircraft, prototype cars have been built and made to run very well the first time. That's just good engineering practices and the developmental processes. It's completely different to a race team. It's completely different to my background as a fighter pilot. It's much more what the test pilots do down at Boscombe Down Uh and the test engineers. So we are copying that kind of model to work the team. But in terms of what was famously called the known unknowns, in other words, there's a bunch of stuff that we know we don't understand yet, the interaction between the wheel and the desert is something that we cannot model. 
and we've been to some of the world's leading experts in complex modelling in that environment, there isn't enough data. We even took them a box of soil. Don't ask me how we got it back into the country. I don't (laughs) want to talk about that. But we actually said, here is a piece of the desert. Here is all the data from last time. Here is all the airflow predictions this time. And they looked at that and said, there's just not enough data here because we can't tell how the surface of the desert is going to behave. Once the shock waves get here, it will actually start to break up the surface in front of the wheels. So the wheel-ground interaction, the shock waves travel through the ground at a different speed to the air. So it is just too complex a problem. If we measure it very accurately, they could build us a model afterwards don't really need that we need to understand now so that's one of the things we will be measuring you're actually writing the book on this correct yeah and that's the magic of the land speed record that's for me as a scientist that's what appeals the unknown unknowns though things we just won't even guess at there'll be some technical challenges there'll be something in the fuel system or the electrics or the suspension that we just never anticipated some sort of heat or acceleration or potentially speed or pressure related problem that just isn't in the books and hasn't been modelled and we'll find that out when we get there. There's one element to this which reacts rather well to pressure and that's a chap who's quite good with your who I'm sitting next to now. I remember seeing the video of Thrust SSC where you got a little bit of a drift on there. At what sort of speed? Well, part of the problem with having supercomputers then that are now just desktop computers is it was very limited in what we could model and we Uh couldn't model your so we didn't realize we were building in some your instability Uh i mean the technology just didn't exist we couldn't have known 10 15 years later with the updated software and supercomputers one of the things we did was remodel thrust ssc to see if the computer could reproduce the data which it did very accurately so it validates the model but also it showed us a lot of things about the car we didn't couldn't know in 1997 and we finished up with the car at approaching 600 miles an hour as the airflow went supersonic underneath the tail and between the asymmetric rear wheels Mm -hmm. it had a much bigger asymmetric effect than the theory at the time predicted so we finished up with some quite unstable asymmetric transonic aerodynamics and all those words are not things you want to find in the same sentence and the result from my point of view is I finish up pretty much wrestling with the steering at 600 miles an hour and at one point 50 feet offline with 90 degrees of steering lock on actually having to steer a couple of times having to steer the car on the throttle and ease off on the power I can't come out of the reheat because it takes too long to relight the record's gone that run is thrown away so I've got to back off to reduce the airflow over the rear end to actually try and balance the car up a little bit better let the steering start responding and as soon as it does full power so right foot hard back down again easing it back down looking for that stability limit to get the car accelerating again and then winding opposite lock off as the car comes back to the line all of this at 650 miles an hour you were a rally driver for a moment then weren't you you're were drifting yeah. sideways managing the grip yeah. stella i'm going to be right there thank you andy you're a busy man i know you've got to go off can we have two more minutes with you any one of these cars are they your favorite is the one that appeals as a real breakthrough the one i love is the one we're sitting next to the cn7 1960 chassis composite bonded chassis they fitted a head-up display they had a basic manual traction control they had electric data logging this thing was so far ahead of its time but beautiful technology though that is the most successful car of all time Malcolm Campbell's 1935 Bluebird four different iterations of car over an eight year period set six world land speed records absolutely astonishing and utterly beautiful car if I could take one home it would be that one Andy 
we wish you the very best. I'm hoping to be there for the record attempt. That's my ambition and, and tremendous pleasure meeting you, Brilliant. sir. Look forward to seeing you there, Gareth. Thank you. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! <laughs>